This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 448, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. And uh, it is um, November the 9th today. Uh, I wanted to let everybody know real quick uh, about some upcoming tour dates um, coming up next week. November 12th, I will be at Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. with Gunhilde Carling. November 13th, I will be at the Bickford Theater in New Jersey with Gunhilde Carling. November 14th, I will be at the Regatta Bar in Boston with Gunhilde Carling. I know that uh, this podcast may come out during the middle of those dates. Uh, then on the 15th, 16th, and 17th, I'll be with the one and only Marilyn May uh, at, um, uh, at Dino's uh, the club. The, 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 the venue is called Dino's Backstage, and uh, that's just outside of Philadelphia. And then I will be with Marilyn May for seven nights at from the 18th through the 24th at 54 Below here in New York City. If you are in the area and you manage to get a ticket, it is amazing, really worth it. She's incredible at the age of 90. Uh, some of some of my funnest gigs have been with her in recent years. Um, it's hard to imagine a 90-year-old kicking as much ass as this woman does, but it is uh, something to behold. So I got all those coming up. I'm also playing uh, all over America with uh, the Countess Luanne de la Seps, who's one of the real housewives of New York. I know it's kind of crazy, but um, it's a pretty fun and amazing show, and even more entertaining is the fan base that shows up. Um, but we, there's a, she sort of hosts the night, and there's a lot of fantastic uh, guest stars that the band plays with on all of those shows. So those, uh, right now, we have, I think, about 15, 18 shows booked through the end of April of 2019. So if you're a fan of The Real Housewives, uh, double-check her website and find out where we're playing near you. They sell out really fast, so um, don't delay. On that note, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the crazy title of this week's episode, which is The Best Band in the World. And even more importantly, I got to play with the best band in the world. Now, you might say, Daniel, that's a lot of hyperbole. It is. Uh, but in this case, actually, it's true. Uh, last, was it even, it was earlier this week, in fact, just a couple of days ago, I got to play with Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. And when it comes to 1920s, 1930s style big band, there is maybe no better band on the planet uh, to play this kind of music. Um, For those of you not familiar with Vince, um, you've heard him more than likely rather than seen him. He has been a mainstay on uh, the scene here in New York uh, for many years, since the 1970s. He recently, I mean, he's been, uh, started his band 42 years ago. Uh, so you do the math on that one. Uh, but he, uh, 
you you would have heard his music if you saw the Martin Scorsese movie The Aviator. You would have heard his music if you watched the TV show Boardwalk Empire. You would have heard his music if uh, you're a fan of Prairie Home Companion. He's on Prairie Home Companion a lot. I'm going to post in the show notes a, an NPR interview with Vince that was done a few years ago, and... Um, you'll get a chance to familiarize yourself with him. But needless to say, when it comes to 1920s music, this guy is uh, non, non-parai and uh, no parallel. And he is an unbelievable uh, band leader. He's a great musician. And his band includes many of the top cats in the world on their instruments. All the guys in the band are themselves Band leaders have very well-established careers. Uh, Many of them, they are the specialists in this style of music. They travel all over the world, playing at a lot of different festivals, uh, cruises, all kinds of stuff. Um, You know, there is a big um, scene out there for 1920s music. So for me, uh, the opportunity to play with this band was a huge honor, and it was also incredibly stress-making. But the reason that I'm... and, and it. By the way, it turned out well. I can tell you that in uh, in uh, after the fact. Um, and I have actually in the show notes, I'm going to post a couple of short video clips of my gig. Uh, they're not the best in terms of being able to see everything that I'm doing, but you can hear what the band is doing, and you'll get a sense of just how monstrous this band is for that style. Um, the reason I'm talking about all this is again, hopefully to inspire, even if you are not a fan of 1920s music, it's to inspire you uh, about the ideas of preparing for a gig, getting ready for a gig, nailing a gig, all these kinds of things. Now, I did, um, one of my earlier uh, podcasts was an episode, I did actually two episodes about preparation. One uh, focused on, you know, if you have time to to prepare, how you should prepare. The other episode dealt with winging it, meaning how are you going to deal with a circumstance, musical circumstance that just falls in your lap and you have to deal with it. So interestingly, this gig was kind of uh, encompassed both because um, I did do a certain amount of preparation for it, uh, but I could only prepare so much. And here's the reason why. Uh, First of all, Vince Giordano's band never rehearses unless they are doing a particular gig with, say, a singer, and it's that singer's material, and so they're going to do the gig at a club. Or they have, perhaps, um, they're doing something for a film score or a television score. Maybe they they rehearse for that. Otherwise, um, it's... it's, no rehearsal. So, by the way, I should back up a couple of steps. Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks play two nights a week in New York City all year long. They play at a club um, called the Iguana, which is right down in Times Square. Uh, it's, it's a Mexican restaurant, and in the downstairs club, there's like Latin dancing. However, there's an upstairs room, and they do all kinds of other interesting things up there. So if you come, you can get some guacamole, you can get some, you know, uh, really wonderful Mexican food, and then you can watch 1920s music. So if you come out to New York, make sure to look for Vince and his band. Um, The reason I sat in with them is that uh, I've been waiting for a long time for my opportunity to do this, by the way. Many of you know that uh, I'm, I'm a specialist and a historian and have a lot of interest in earlier styles of music. And when I was out on the West Coast before, 
before I moved to New York, I played a lot of 1920s music and got my feet wet and gathered some of the vintage gear and began to work out on some of these um, instruments, developing my press roll technique, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you know, as many of you know, a 1920s drum set is vastly different and is played very differently than a modern drum set. For starters, there is no hi-hat. There is no ride cymbal. Um, Instead, what you have to be able to do is to play uh, swinging press rolls, essentially, swinging rudimental patterns, which is a, a, a totally acquired skill. It's not like anything you might do on a modern drum set. Um, you, uh, you also have to develop what is called a choke cymbal technique, and I'm going to actually demonstrate that on the podcast in a, in a, in a bit here. Um, but I'm just sort of setting the stage, right? So, uh, you know, for maybe the last 20 years or so, I have been slowly developing my 1920s approach. I teach uh, to my students who are interested in it. I do 1920s gigs. I did many of them in California and some out here in New York. Out here, there's a very thriving, both coasts really, there's a thriving uh, scene for 20s music. I know that in New Orleans there is. I know that uh, in Chicago, Seattle, um, Kansas City, St. Louis, all these, you know, you'd be surprised. Check around where you live. You'll probably find some kind of 1920s scene where people are... um, playing this music or dancing to this music, often the two go hand in hand. Uh, so I have known about Vince's band for many years, and on the Century Project uh, DVD, I actually used two different lineups for the performances, and a couple of the guys in the lineup for the earlier material, the ragtime 1920s, 1930s material, uh, were Vince Giordano guys. So, um, however, that said... You know, here in New York, like I said, this band is the best band in the world for this stuff, literally, and the best guys in town are doing it. And so um, I had sort of skirted around the edges. I've done a lot of gigs with a lot of guys in his band, uh, but I had never actually had the opportunity to work with the Nighthawks. And I sort of was like, okay, you know, I mean, 1920s isn't my focus uh, here in New York. I'm busy doing a lot of other things. So when I get a 20s gig, it just sort of falls in my lap. But this, um, a few weeks ago, I got a text from the current drummer, really, really terrific uh, drummer named Paul Wells uh, on the New York scene. He subs in the Birdland Big Band, uh, the band that Tommy Igo started. He also subs in the, uh, uh, the famous Village Vanguard Orchestra, which was started by Mel Lewis and Thad Jones. And now, you know, John Riley has been the drummer in that band for years. So Paul's a heavy, heavy hitter. Uh, also, by the way, another alumni of the Vince Giordano band is a guy named Joe Saylor, who is the drummer uh, with Stay Human, John Baptiste's band on Stephen Colbert every night. So the guy with the cowboy hat. So um, there's some pretty well-known alumni and some pretty great drummers that have done this band. So I knew Paul through, you know, having met him on the scene and in various places over the years. And a few weeks ago, he sends me a text. Would you like to start subbing on the, on the Vince Giordano band? And I told him, well, I got my Monday gig at Birdland, but if that's okay. Oh, and I'm a lefty. If that's okay, then cool. And he said, yeah, no problem. Now, one thing I should also point out about the gear and about the style of playing is that Vince provides his own drum set. And I'll try to put up some pictures of of Vince's drum set. Um, When you play at the club, they keep the gear stored in a storage room upstairs, and they bring it down for Monday and Tuesday nights. Um... And Vince has, over the years, collected an unbelievable 
put together just an, an incredible traps type of setup. 28-inch bass drum with a painted front head, light bulb inside, big Chinese toms, both a small one and a floor tom that sits in a basket. Um, he has got a beautiful trap table with temple blocks, beautiful wood block, cowbell, all vintage pieces, lots of bells and whistles and other kinds of handheld traps. He's got a couple of bock-a-bock hand symbols, which look like little uh, hi-hats that are held uh, kind of in a, there's a couple of different styles that they made them in, but they're from the late 1920s and they're, they're often used. Um, Zudi Singleton used them a lot with Louis Armstrong in the late, very late 1920s. They're sort of a handheld predecessor to the hi-hat. Um, the, the rig also contains, for those of you who are fans of Chick Webb, um, you might recall seeing photos of Chick Webb's drum set where he had these, uh, very elaborate, uh, kind of arms that would come up out of the trap table and then spiral up over and around and the symbols hang from the top of those arms not so it's not like the post that the symbol sits on and the way that these the symbols are there there's a big chinese symbol with rivets in it there's um also a a small symbol that is the choke symbol uh these are not suspended in normal ways they are literally hanging from a leather strap so when you hit these symbols, they just flail about, and they're very awkward and, and hard to uh, maneuver. So you're kind of getting the setup in mind now. Now, in addition to this drum set, uh, which, by the way, a 28-inch bass drum, oh, wide open, you basically tap it and it roars. Uh, he's got his own snare drum, a vintage, uh, I think it's either a Slingerland, perhaps. Um, so that's sort of the basic components of the drum set. But then he's got... A, a fantastic uh, amount of orchestral percussion as well. So there's a set of chimes, there's a gong, there's a timpani, there's a vibraphone, um, there's a washboard and thimbles. Um, and all of these are, these parts have to be played at various points in the charts. Now, for those not so much in the know, prior to sort of the era of Gene Krupa in the 1930s, a drum set player... Uh, actually wasn't even called a drum set player. They didn't really call it a drum set. They called it a trap trap set or a trap rig. Or um, uh, and, and drummers, drum set players were called trap drummers. And the reason why is that essentially the, the function of a drummer at this time was trifold. Number one, it was the, the purpose of a, a drummer playing on a drum set was to keep rhythm, to keep time of to make people dance or to accompany stage shows, uh, all of these uh, maybe to to be involved in radio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that that's a function we're familiar with today. And by the time we get to the mid '30s in Gene Krupa, the the drum set really emerges that that's the primary function. But in the 1920s, there were two other usages. Uh, Number one was that drum set players were still sort of considered to be percussionists and were expected to play uh, orchestral parts, especially if they were reading from sheet music. So um, imagine, if you will, when you look at 1920s drum parts, they will often have a little flourish on the bells. Uh, when you look at photos of old drum sets from from the 1920s or earlier, um, and I've looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these, uh, in my work doing research, there are often, as a part of the drum set, some kind of orchestral percussion. Even simple drum sets had a glockenspiel or had a uh, vibraphone or had a uh, timpani. Um, when you think about, you know, the 
20s for sure, but also the 1930s and someone like Sonny Greer. There's some famous pictures of him. with He was the drummer for Duke Ellington. You see much more elaborate orchestral setups like the one uh, that, that Vince has. So now all of this, this drum set is packed onto a four by four foot riser that is on top of the stage and is quite high. It's about two feet high. Uh, the timpani is on a rolling platform that you have to pull out in order to get in and then roll it back in. The chimes are sitting next to you. The gong is a small gong hanging off, kind of off the chimes. Uh, the vibraphone is next to you on the other side. It's sitting on the proper stage, so you have to kind of reach down to it. Uh, it's crazy. Everything is packed in. Everything is tight. Everything is... is uh, very, very compact. So imagine me. Oh, and there is a hi-hat, by the way. Uh, the hi-hat is a, a, has 11-inch cymbals on it. And for some of the 1930s material, the hi-hat did emerge in the 1930s, you might switch. But you got to look at the charts, and you got to make sure, uh, for a lot of them, they list the copyright date in Roman numerals at the bottom. So you got to make sure that you are... Um, you know, that, that you're uh, in the right era, that you're not going to play the hi-hat when you're playing a 1920s tune because drummers in general were not using hi-hats. What they were doing instead was playing this choke cymbal technique. Um, so uh, that gives you a basic sense. Now, meanwhile, to your left is Vince himself. Vince is the bass player in the band, and what he has in his rig is crazy. He's got a sousaphone, which is mounted on a stand, so he can play it without having to pick it up or put it on. He also has an upright bass, and his upright bass is made of metal. The body is made of metal, full-size upright bass, um, which a lot of uh, instruments, uh, I mean, it is a popular 1920s device. You also had what were called resonator guitars in the 1920s, which were also made of metal. Um, Maybe you've seen them, a lot of blues guys use them. Um, The reason why is that the making it of metal allowed the instrument to project. And in the 1920s, of course, you didn't have amplifiers for your guitars or basses. You didn't have microphones to pick things up. So whatever they could do to get the uh, instruments to project, they did. And I'll tell you about some of the other interesting instruments on the bandstand as well that would help with that. Um, so Vince has the, the upright bass. He has uh, the... Um, uh, sousaphone, tuba, and then he also has a bass sax. Now, for those of you that don't know what a bass sax is, if you imagine a baritone sax, which is a pretty big horn, the bass sax is about twice that big. And it literally, if you were to stand next to the bass sax and hold it up next to you, it probably would be about six feet high, maybe five to six feet high. It is a big saxophone. And so he also has that sitting on a stand so that he can move between the different instruments. And, um, and, and uh, uh, so sometimes within one song, he'll actually play all three instruments depending on what's happening. And again, the bass sax today is not seen very much in music. Jazz players don't use a bass sax. I've never seen anyone use a bass sax except for, except for Vince Giordano. Uh, and that's the kind of guy that he is, his dedication to absolute... Uh, really replicating uh, everything from the 1920s. So um, uh, the the thing is, there were people that used bass saxes in the 1920s, uh, particularly a guy named Adrian Rolini, uh, who was, that's the instrument he was known for, was the bass sax. And so when you listen to a lot of these old recordings that were playing, uh, you will hear bass sax. And it's just a very, very deep, 
um, booming saxophone. I can't imagine it's easy to play because you got to push a lot of air through it, and the reed is probably enormous uh, to have to get it to vibrate. Uh, so um, very interesting. Now let me let me talk about a few of the other instruments in the band because I really want to tempt you guys to go check out some of these videos. You're going to see some of the things that I'm talking about uh, when I post these. The first thing is that um, the rest of the instrumentation. It's a 10-piece band. So you have myself on drums, Vince on the bass instruments, and then a piano player. Now, the piano player also has what's called a celeste, which is a small uh, sort of a combination. Imagine if you had a glockenspiel and you played it with piano keys. So it's maybe a couple of octaves, two and a half octaves. And it sounds like a little music box when you play it. So that's the piano player's other acts. Now, let's go to the brass. You've got two trumpet players, one trombone player, and actually the trumpet players are, maybe one is playing cornet and one is playing trumpet because the cornet, or they maybe both have cornets and trumpets. Uh, The cornet was the first version of the trumpet in jazz, uh, and it was uh, a military instrument, and it was first adapted uh, as a jazz instrument because, of course, jazz comes from military bands. So... um, Often, guys that play 1920s music and gals are trumpet players, but they also play cornet, or maybe they focus specifically on cornet because it gives you that vintage sound. Interestingly, the reason why the cornet gave way to the trumpet, and the trumpet is now the default instrument in jazz, is because Louis Armstrong was the first one to really popularize the trumpet, and it maybe has a a more flexible sound, it has a bigger range, uh, maybe you can play it louder. I don't know all the reasons why. Uh, those are my guesses. But um, so, and of course, Louis Armstrong came of age, became famous in the 1920s. So it was a, you know, just by the virtue of one man choosing this instrument, he was so famous and so well regarded as a trumpet player that the whole industry went with him after that, which I think is just amazing. Okay, so your two trumpet slash cornet guys, trombone player. Uh, just one. And he also plays a baritone horn. So for those of you who are in marching band, you've got a baritone horn, and sometimes he'll get that out and play solos on it, because again, 1920s, they were using a lot of different marching instruments in jazz bands. In the early jazz bands, they were adapting the different instruments that were used in a marching band scenario. So before things kind of got, um, you know, kind of, um, uh, what's the term, standardized, uh, you had a lot of these kind of weird instruments like bass sax and baritone and cornet and things like that that we don't take for granted today in a jazz band. So you've got that. Next to him, you've got a banjo slash guitar player. Of course, banjo, uh, you know, a lot, not, not necessarily popular today unless you're playing bluegrass or country, but it started out as an early jazz instrument. Again, my thoughts on it is because it was very loud that is why it found favor in early jazz bands. It also has kind of a wacky, whimsical quality to it, which, um, you know, fit in well with what jazz originally was about, which was the Roaring Twenties and high party music, high energy music, uh, and it was dance music in its earlier um, iterations, jazz was. So you've got a banjo and a guitar. And it's really great when you see a, ja- a real jazz banjo player playing 1920s music because they've got incredible facility. They can do unbelievable things on their instrument. And it's, it gives you a whole new perspective on what banjo is. It's not, you know, um, barbershop quartet or, 
you know, uh, hillbilly, you know, uh, it, it is a really a beautiful instrument and the guys could really play the hell out of it back in the day. Now let's go across the, the, the next row. Uh, we've got, uh, <clears throat> I believe, uh, three saxophone players. I should say reed players because they're playing many instruments. They all have a clarinet. They all have, um, there, there's probably one alto player and two tenor players. Uh, and uh, each of them has a clarinet. Also, each of them has a baritone sax. So there are some tunes where all of the guys in the reed section are all playing baritone. And Vince, at one point in the night, had had uh, everybody play a note on their sax, the three baritone saxes, which are low, and the bass sax. And it sounded like the biggest ocean liner you've ever heard. It was like... So very hilarious. And... Uh, it's great because Vince has a, the band has a lot of humor and they're constantly kind of fooling around with all the conventions of the 1920 stuff and, and doing crazy things like that. So, um, so you have that. And then the last instrument, uh, I guess it's the fourth horn player. He's actually the dedicated baritone player. So the other guys have baritones, but they're busy playing tenors and altos and clarinets and things. This poor guy, who's an amazing musician, uh, he actually plays the violin and baritone sax. So if you want to have, you know, this chair in Vince Giordano's band, you have to be able to play both of those instruments because that's what's in the book for you. Now, I don't know how he finds guys that can do both of those at such a high level, uh, but it's, it's pretty incredible. And on his violin, and I think there's a shot of this in the videos, when... When he plays, and this is also a standardized thing that they did in the 1920s, he attaches something to his violin that looks like uh, the, the cone of an old Victrola machine, or it looks like a megaphone, right? Um, oftentimes, by the way, and when Vince, oh, I forgot to mention Vince is also the singer in the band. So he has a mic hanging, suspended from the ceiling, coming down. It's one of these old um, circular mics. It looks like a a flat plate that's round and you sing into the center of it, uh, that's hanging from above him. So he, he doesn't have a mic stand in his way and he could just sing into that mic. So he's, he, when he started at this club, he's been at several clubs in New York city over these 40 years where he's had always had steady gigs. Uh, he, um, you know, uh, always has to set up the entire space so that he could bring all his gear in and, and have it set up properly, which means having some semi-permanent way of having that mic suspended from the ceiling, right? So um, speaking of megaphones, Vince will uh, get out a small megaphone at times and holler into it to give it that real kind of 1920s thing. And a lot of vocalists, by the way, in the 1920s sang through megaphones. People spoke through megaphones because there was no way to amplify the voice. So this was one, you know, uh, analog way, I guess you could say, to, to, anal to uh, uh, project the voice. So the violinist, to get back to him, he has one of these attached to his uh, violin. So it's this weird cone-shaped thing pointing up you know, where the, the small parts near the violin and the, it, it extends outward, 
Uh, and so it projects the violin. And I'd actually seen one of these in some of the 1920s gigs I'd done in L.A., but um, it's, a, it's a rare sighting and not something you'd expect to see on a violin. So that's to give you an idea of what the stage looks like. Everyone's in tuxedos. There are band fronts that have the name of the band on them, et cetera, et cetera. Now, let me talk about what I had to do to get ready for this gig and about the music itself, because that's a whole nother story. Um, so as I mentioned, there is no rehearsal. So there's no way I can know that I could practice the specific material. So I should mention that one of Vince's many uh, specialties is that he is a collector of sheet music and of uh, band scores from this era. I should also mention that none of his music is any later than 1940. So he, uh, you know, he doesn't play any music from past 1940, <laughs> which is crazy, but these 1920s and 30s folks, that's, that's their thing. And music, once the swing era really ended after World War II, music, both pop music and jazz music changed significantly. So a lot of these folks, this is it. This is what they're into. Uh, but along those lines, I should say that Vince uh, lives in a house in Brooklyn. He has a full house. The entire basement is filled floor to ceiling with filing cabinets. It looks like a maze when you go. And it's literally these, you know, the real wide, five foot wide filing cabinets going up, you know, four or five drawers high. Uh, and he, I think he has something like 60 or 75,000 pieces of music. So his, you know, a lot of times when you play with a big band, and this is a big band, 10 pieces, uh, what you do is you arrive and there's the book. And the book has maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 charts in it. Vince, there is a crate of books, and there are five of them. And each one of these books has, I would say, 500 charts in it. So uh, you've got book one has chart one through 150. But now, even though there's one through 150... Oh, also, before it gets to those, it has A through Z charts. <laughs> so you got to know when he calls something, it's like, you know, U, you're starting with chart U or whatever, and, um, and then it moves to the other charts. Now, for every chart, say you're talking about chart 135, more than likely there is a 135X, which would be on the backside of 135. So sometimes, you know, the charts are one, two, maybe three pages, never usually longer than that. Well, imagine flipping that whole three pages over and there's another two or three page chart on the other side with the same number with an X after it. So he, he started out by um, numbering these charts all the way up to a thousand. He got up to thousand. That was the first three books. So maybe not 500 a book, but still. He got up to, to chart number 1,000 and started over again with what are called the red books. So these, that's the next two books. These two books have um, all the charts are written. They start over at one again. And then now the numbers are written in red up in the upper left-hand corner of each chart. And um, you have to f know that you got to refile at the end of the gig which book the charts are going to so they end up in the right place. So, you know, uh, you know where you're going. So for me... There was no preparing by learning the music, right? When I did the Brian Setzer gig, um, I, I didn't have any rehearsal, but I got a, a, a DVD of the concert I was supposed to learn along with some charts, which I had to, they were very basic charts. I had to mark them up myself and put everything in. But still, 
I had time to prepare that way. This this time, nothing. Now, I should mention that my quote-unquote audition for Vince's band was the drummer said, hey, why don't you come down, you know, uh, this week after we had talked about me sitting in, why don't you come down and... Uh, and uh, check out the band. And I'd seen Vince's band many times, but I hadn't seen him in a number of years. So I said, okay, great. So I came down. Little did I know that when I showed up uh, to check out the band, I was going to be sitting in. And this was sort of my audition. So now I have to try to switch things around on this riser that's two feet off or three feet off the ground, which is above the stage. Uh, By the way, there's sprinklers. You know those open sprinklers that uh, where the sprinkler head comes out, the drum riser is so high that you're right above the pipes and there's a sprinkler head there. And if you're not careful, you wang your head into this sprinkler head. So imagine, if you will, trying to maneuver and switch some things around. So luckily the band does three sets a night. And during the set break, I was able to switch things around. And then it's off to the races. Five charts, I think I read. And that's it. That's my one and only opportunity. And I should also mention that the there's no way to swap the um, these suspended symbols the way they're hanging. They're all built into the trap table, and you can't remove them or change them. And the even the music stand that the music is on is built into a runner that runs along one side of the drum riser, and the music stand just permanently screws into this one spot. So I can't even adjust the music stand. I can't raise it or lower it. All I could do is turn it and maybe tilt it a little bit. Um, So, you know, I'm basically, if you imagine my, especially when I was sitting in, my positioning was very awkward. Uh, The choke symbol, to reach the choke symbol, I had to reach really far and really high, really far in front of me, really off to my left and really high, and I have to grab the cymbal with two hands so I could play it. Now, while we're here, let me let me demonstrate the choke cymbal for you guys So uh, and gals. The choke cymbal is, a, is usually a smaller cymbal. It was the primary, one of the primary ways that drummers in the 1920s kept rhythm. And if you imagine sort of what we call the afterbeat, two and four, one, two, three, four, one, two, you would choke the cymbal, you'd hold it with one hand and strike it with the other. So you'd play all four beats, but you would choke the cymbal. Right? So that doesn't seem too hard if the cymbal is sitting right in front of you. But now, imagine that there's different gradations of that. So sometimes you're going to play it, right? Sometimes you're going to open it up. Right, so now, okay, you've got those kind of adjustments. Now, imagine that you're going to take, um, say you're using your right hand to play the rhythm and you're choking with your left. Well, now you're going to hold the stick in the left hand because you can't put that down when you go to the choke. And you're going to hold it up underneath the cymbal and play it this way. So now you can create all kinds of really interesting patterns out of your basic choke pattern. So it sounds something like this. So now things get more complicated because, oh, I forgot to mention this. Vince's choke cymbal is old and has been cracked many times. So there's several wedges, really wide wedges cut out of it. It looks like a pie that's had two or three pieces, two pieces, let's say, 
taken out of it. So it's, it's um, over the years, it's gotten smooth, so you're not going to cut your hand, but imagine trying to find an appropriate place to grab this symbol. Now, imagine me reaching as far as I can up and off to my left in a very awkward way. And now let's put the tempo where Vince plays a lot of his tunes right here. Okay, so one, two, one, two, three. Okay, so <laughs> now when I, when I went for my quote-unquote audition, my, my choke cymbal technique was not all that great. And I watched Paul, the drummer, and how beautifully he did the choke stuff. And when I got up to do it, I just played the basic technique, especially at those faster upwards of 300 BPM tempos. So what I did in the you know, couple of weeks I had between my quote-unquote audition and my first time with the band, I did have some time to prepare, which was um, at the show that night, I made some videos and I made some voice memos of the band playing a tune, variety of tunes at different tempos. Uh, I, um, I uh, had a meeting with Vince where we talked about music and he shared a bunch of YouTube things with me, uh, things that he liked, and we talked about time and that kind of stuff. So, so that was cool. There was some support. I wasn't just hanging out to dry. But uh, the night I got to the gig. That's it. You know, you've got 1,500 charts over five books. You've, you've got all this awkward gear and you got to make it work. Now, remember, what do we do when we get in a gig where we're not comfortable? We tense up. So the first, the, the next layer of like super freaking hardness about this is not only playing choke cymbal, not only being in an awkward position, not only having to jump up and play a chime part when it comes in or play a vibraphone part which this, these parts are not that hard, but I'm not exactly the greatest sight reader when it comes to mallet instruments. Timpani, right? Uh, I had to tune the timp from a B flat up to a C, and Vince is like, okay, timpani on this song, you know? So it's about jumping up, making sure the timpani mallets are there, trying to adjust the timp, hear it, you know, if I can, and then making it match in with the rest of the band. So there's all of that. But now let's talk about and there's 300 BPM, by the way. And you got to get up to that choke symbol. You know, you're playing your press rolls. And it goes back and forth. There's also a lot of chokes. So you'll be playing. You know, and grab those little chokes. So you're moving all around this drum set and trying to get up there. And of course, you got to wear a tuxedo. With a vest. He demands that you wear a vest underneath your tuxedo. So not only are you being bound by your coat, but you're being bound by a vest <laughs> inside the coat. Uh, so all of it leads for ungainliness and crazy making. Um, but there's a couple other things I want to just add to the mix, just in case you thought, you know, this was going to be a walk in the park. So the last thing is the charts, 1920s charts. Now, I should mention that many of Vince's charts are what are called takedowns because there were no scores. Uh, and thankfully, he, like, often when you play in a big band, you may not have a drum part. You may just get the, the lead trumpet part, and you've got to learn, or you may get a bass part, or you may get the piano part. And from that, you've got to decipher what you're supposed to do. And there's some clues in there, but it's great for a drummer when you have an actual real drum part that has 
the points where you're going to set up the kicks and all of those um, r- that rhythmic information because the better you are as a drummer, the more you can help the band, right? The worst kind of chart is what we call slash charts where you're looking at a chart and it just has eight bars of slash marks and it just, you know, has the, the, the various sections of the song. That gives me no information other than this is the form of the song. And if that's the case, I'd almost rather have nothing and use my ears. Because a lot of times when you're playing big band, you're so hung up on reading, you forget to listen to the music, which of course is the most important thing. So, uh, thankfully, Vince being the guy absolutely dedicated to detail and dedicated to uh, really nailing it and getting it right, over the years, over the 42 years he's been in this business, has done beautiful transcriptions or takedowns, meaning that somebody sat down with the actual record and really wrote down exactly as best they could hear, because of course 1920s records are harder to hear, but the more you listen to 1920s records, the more you can discern what's going on in, in all the instruments and in, and in the drums. So somebody, Vince or somebody else, over the years have done takedowns of the charts, and those are done sort of in finale, uh, more modern software, or they're handwritten, but they're very clear, and um, that makes it easier for me to do my job and get around this this massive hulking drum set uh, at these lightning tempos, and, and, and of course he plays ballads and things too, but he likes the up-tempo, you know, quote-unquote hot jazz. Um, but things get really gnarly when you have to play actual charts from the 1920s. And they did, they did write full scores with drum parts at that time. But here's the deal with 1920s drum parts. So uh, 19, typically in a, in a, um, in a, in a drum chart, you, we, you'll have, they'll break things up for you so that you have eight bar sections and then say there's a three bar section they'll show you three bars and there's a double bar each time you get to a new section of the song you see a double bar line uh and it's fairly cleared out so you can um or clearly it's it's, it's clearly written so that the 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 movements of the songs are are clear and in the 1920s it's important that 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 is written that way because 1920s music in particular has a lot of different conventions than modern jazz does. Modern jazz is often 32 bars, um, you know, A-A-B-A format, eight bars of the A section, and that repeated, then a bridge for eight bars, then the A section again. And we all have know a million songs in, in an A-A-B-A format. Or it's a blues, which is a 12-bar form or a 24-bar form. You know, sometimes you have a 16-bar blues. But um, in general, the form's conform. In the 1920s, they did things very differently. And so you would have, say, the 32-bar form, and then there'll be like a little three-bar interlude before you go to the next section, uh, and or a two-bar interlude, or maybe even just a one-bar little transition. So you got to, having heard so much 1920s music over the years, I'm now fairly familiar with how the music moves and my ears and eyes are open for these kinds of little changes that happen, these little transition sections. Now, that said, the way that you can negotiate these things is say you have an eight-bar section written and then you have a three-bar section written, okay? So that makes sense. Or, you know, if it's a nine-bar phrase, you know, and that, that'll happen too, it's not an eight-bar phrase, they want to milk it one more bar before you get to the next inch, so they add a ninth bar, they'll put 
the numbers above. So you'll see on an eight bar phrase, you might see the number four on the fourth bar and then the number eight written in parentheses above the eighth bar. And that's a very standard way of writing things. So if you say you have an eight bar phrase and it goes between two lines of the music, say you have, you know, it's, it's the last two bars is the beginning of your eight bar section. So they might put a two and then on, you'll have the first six, the, the last six bars of your eight-bar section on the next line. And so you see at bar six of the next line, you'll see that eight. So you're like, okay, they're spelling it out for me. I can follow that eight-bar phrase. No problem. Well, guess what they do in 1920s music? In 1920s music, when you get to an end of the line and the next line of music starts, they start over on one. So instead of, say you've got the first, you know, same example, the first two bars, you get a number one to show you the beginning of that phrase, and then another number one at the beginning of the next line. Now, this makes no sense whatsoever. It's unhelpful as can be. And I asked Vince about this and because I want, you know, he's the expert, and he said that this happens all the time. He said it's, it's frustrating for him because, you know, he, as the band leader, wants it clear for his drummer to understand what's going on. And I... I don't know, it's some weird-ass convention where you just, at the beginning of each new line, no matter where you are in the phrasing of the song, you start over on one. So it doesn't happen that way on all charts, but it happens on a lot of 1920s, specifically the drum charts, not other charts. I don't know if these guys were sadists uh, who were doing these these takedowns of these arrangements. So if you can imagine, you're going to go play with the best band in the world, and this is what you're up against. Uh, you might imagine as to why I was just a little bit nervous before this gig this past Tuesday night. And, you know, even though I'd had a certain amount of preparation, I've been playing 1920s music. Uh, I'm very good at my press roll patterns. Uh, I spent a good couple of weeks just really crossing my I's and dotting my T's and listening to a lot of 1920s music. And then you get up and it's go time. There is no there is no time to stop. There's no retake. There's no start over. Uh, and you better not lose where the band is. And I have to say, I'm quite proud of myself because uh, I, I hung in there very aptly. Um, Vince, I think, was quite happy with my performance. Some of the, some of the guys in the band who tend to, uh, shall we say, they're a bit stingy with compliments because basically they are the best. And so they're, you know, <laughs> you got to really uh, bring it. You know, um, I got some nice compliments from the guys in the band. In fact, one of them said, you know, oh, yeah, I didn't even really notice there was a sub on the gig, meaning it was nothing standing out like a sore thumb. They did have some interesting, uh, I asked them before the gig, I said, please, you know, let me know if there's something I'm not doing or could be doing. And the only thing they really said is that certain of the instruments, and this is very interesting, and this will be my last point, certain of the instruments are um, exceptionally loud. And depends on the room. Uh, this particular room, it's a, a, you know, maybe an eight-foot ceiling, so it's not very high. Um, and the walls have mirrors on them, so it is a very, very live room. So this Chinese symbol is like a 20-inch Chinese symbol with rivets in it. So imagine you don't have to hit it very hard for it to explode. Uh, similarly, the wood block is not a typical, um, it's certainly made of wood, it's not a typical orchestral woodblock, which is, you know, maybe about six inches long. It is a much bigger, beefier, it's maybe a foot long, and um, uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, the, the height of it 
uh, is about uh, four or five inches high. So the woodblock is can be extremely loud and piercing. And they said, I don't know if it's just the room or where we're sitting. It was mainly the brass players who were right in front of me. They said the woodblock just kills us. Um, so, you know, and then at one point during the first set, Vince was like, hey, could you just, you know, go a little easier on it. And, you know, this is what happens with us drummers, right? Is that we get nervous. And so what do we do? We play a lot heavier and a lot louder because we're tense. And in order to play with delicacy, you've got to be more relaxed. So I was able to, I've done enough of this. I was able to notch it down, kick it back. uh, And, you know, these are the skills really that I've developed to a very deep level since I've been here in New York, because I work a lot in the jazz scene. I work a lot with vocalists. I play, you know, a lot in small groups behind vocalists. And you really have to make like mezzo piano your default playing level. And obviously that is not easy to do for, for, you know, for drummers. Drummers like, as I always say, drummers like, they like loud and fast. They do not like slow and soft. Those are the most terrifying two words to a drummer, right? Play it slowly and softly. So, um, you know, that, that is me just rambling for 47 solid minutes about this experience of working with Vince Giordano. But it was an incredible night. For me, this is another bucket list item. I think I mentioned um, a few podcasts ago I played at Carnegie Hall. You know, this is why I moved to New York, is that I am playing with the greatest, and I'm playing in the best venues in the world, or at least some of the most storied you know, I'm sure there are great venues everywhere. I know there are. I've played in a lot of them. But, you know, for me, I'm still, I feel like I'm 21 years old and battling to, like, get, you know, to 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 succeed and to work my way up. And, and that's my attitude. I never stop feeling like, you know, uh, I'm there. I have arrived. I feel like I've never arrived, no matter what I've done in my musical career. And I've done a lot of great stuff. But to me, that's what keeps it exciting, is that tension of like, my God, I have the chance to play with the best band in the world, literally. And I cannot blow this. I just cannot blow it. So how am I going to prepare so that no matter what happens, I'm ready for this, for this crazy gig. So again, I I thank you guys for listening to my rant, my ramble about uh, playing with the Vince Giordano, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. That's the official name. I encourage you to go to the show notes page. I'm going to post some of these videos to my YouTube channel and then embed them in the show notes page. Uh, I encourage you to check them out um, and you'll get a sense of just how unique and special and wonderful this band is. And uh, hopefully um, I'll be doing some more work with them as a sub and uh, maybe you'll get a chance when you come to New York to check to check it out. But definitely check out Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks at the Iguana. Uh, or just look them up, and hopefully when you come to town, you'll get a chance to see them. It is a unique experience you will not have anywhere else in the world. So that is it for this episode of The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. Please do uh, be in touch if you have any questions, thoughts, comments. I also welcome suggestions for new podcasts. I've been doing this for a while now, and so sometimes it's hard to find good ideas. Uh, So send me your ideas. You can follow me on my Facebook, Daniel Glass Drummer Author Educator page. You can write to me uh, from my website, danielglass.com. And um, I hope to see you out there uh, in the world and on the road. Take care and keep swinging, people.